seems like I've been a Christian forever. You'd think I'd be better at it. <laughs> In fact, uh, let me do a little experiment here. Let's see. Um, I want you to raise your hand if you were born on or after July 22nd, 1971. If you were born on or after July 22nd, 1971, raise your hands up high. Raise them up high where we can see them. Some of you are not raising your hands, and I know good and well you were born after July 22nd, 1971. Let me tell you something. I've been a Christian longer than you've been alive. How about that? And, you know, I mean, so many of you have said to me, but Pastor Scott, you look so young, and thank you for that. But... um, (laughs) But even though I've been a Christian, lo, these many years, there's still an amazing truth that just blows my mind. There's an amazing truth, a thought that I'm not sure we can ever fully grasp. The fact that God himself could be standing right next to us in the flesh. That's what we believe, us Christians, that God became one of us. I mean, that we, that's what we believe. But now we all want to have our yeah, but moment with that, right? We all want to say, yeah, yeah, God became one of us. But, you know, his robe was just a little whiter than everybody else's. And, and you know what? His teeth were a little straighter than everybody else's. And his voice was a little deeper than everybody else's. And when he walked, his feet didn't get dirty like everybody else's feet. Yeah, he was one of us, but you know there just had to be something different about him. It's hard for us to get our heads around that concept. That, that, that God put on a body and became one of us. That at one time, Jesus was in heaven. He was at the right hand of the Father. He was adored by all the angels. And he left all that behind to become one of us. In in fact, he was so much like one of us that for 90% of his time on this earth, he didn't really do anything. He was a carpenter. He learned to trade. But he didn't really do anything. And nobody uh, knew that he was anything other than Joseph's son. So when he started his ministry, there were some people who said, wait a second. Uh, This is Joe and Mary's boy. This is our town carpenter. This guy's nothing special. He's claiming now to be a prophet and a teacher. Jesus was one of us, and so indistinguishable from anyone else that when he began teaching, the people who knew him were like, what? This guy's from our town. We watched him grow up. And he starts t- teaching and doing some miraculous things, and then he, he makes some claims that sound, you know, a little outrageous and hard to believe, and then they decide that he's a heretic, and they crucify him. And he dies as less than one of us. 
You know, it's easy for us to be critical of people back then. But think about it this way. What would it take for me to convince you that I'm God? (laughs) That ain't never going to happen. Yeah, as long as my mother and my brothers are alive, I'm not going to be able to convince anybody (laughs) that I'm God, right? I could never get away with claiming to be God. I mean, even if I did miracles and stuff that that would convince people I was from God, I I wouldn't have any success whatsoever convincing people that I was God. But Jesus came. He lived all his life on this earth in human form. And at the end of his life, there were people who said, I lived with him for three years. I walked and talked with him. I sat around the campfire with him. I ate with him. I laughed with him. And I believe that this man, this carpenter, Mary and Joseph's son, I believe that he is God. God became one of us. Well, how about James? Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, this is something that ought to go in your think about it file. James wrote one of the books of the Bible. It's a New Testament book called, appropriately enough, 2 Thessalonians. Right. And No, I'm just with you. It's called James. Right? James was Jesus' brother. Now think about this. If you're trying to hoax people into believing that you're God, who is the one person who is surely going to come along And rat you out to everybody. That's your brother, right? I mean, your brother doesn't even want you to be able to run faster than he does. Right? Your brother doesn't want to lose a match of one, two, three, four, I declare a thumb war to you. Your brother doesn't want you to have a bigger piece of pie than he got. He's not going to let you get away with claiming to be God. Unless, you know... You are. You know what James calls his big brother in the book he wrote? Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That was James saying, I believe that this guy, this guy that I grew up with, I believe he's God. I believe he was God in human flesh, that God was one of us. Here's the question we're going to talk about for the next few weeks leading up to Easter. Why? Why did God do that? Why did Jesus come? Now you ask that question in a room full of Christians and hands will shoot up all over the place. Ooh, ooh, to die for our sins, to die for our sins. Well, yeah, right answer. But why did he do that in the way that he did it? Why become one of us? Why live among us? Now, depending on where we went to church when we were growing up, most of us have a kind of a default answer to that question, right? I mean, we'll, we'll say something that sounds really good and, and spiritual, like um, to be a good example, to be a role model, uh, to teach us how to live our lives. And I'll tell you something, if that's the way we think, we may need to read the Gospels again. Because, and I'm going to tell you right up front, this is going to sound sketchy to you, okay? 
This is going to go down a little bit hard for some of us, all right? But if you'll hang on to the end and let us get the big picture, that picture, picture, listen to me, sound like I'm from Alabama. Let us get the big picture, and, and I think you'll understand where I'm going with this, okay? Don't, don't let this distract you too much, but I've got to talk about this. Let me just ask this question. How was Jesus a role model? He wasn't a father, so I don't learn anything there. He wasn't a husband. I don't learn anything there. I don't see him as a businessman. Do you? I don't see in the Gospels that he held a job in those three years that the Gospels are written about. I don't see him working at a career. I mean, if Jesus is going to be a role model, we sure don't have a whole lot to go on. I don't see him fulfilling any of the roles that we have to fill. Well, he's... He's our good example. <laughs> oh, man. I, I don't know about you, but I read the Gospels, and I go, okay, what else you got? I can't do that. And I'm the professional. Read the Sermon on the Mount sometime. Jesus is there talking about cutting off our hands gouging out our eyes if they cause us to sin. I mean, I'm looking around this morning and I don't see any one-eyed, one-handed people out there. But what about Jesus talking about marriage and divorce? Oh my goodness, that, that just throws us into a tailspin. We can't handle that one, so we've got to go run to the Apostle Paul to look for some loopholes, or we've got to go find a, a pastor who's going to say, well, now there's this Greek thing there, and so what this really means is, so we can skirt around that because we're uncomfortable with what it says. People came to Jesus with the simplest questions, and Jesus would give them answers that sometimes, to me, Seem a little impractical. Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Go, sell all that you have, then come and follow me. Why don't you try that next time you're witnessing to somebody? You know, you're sharing Jesus with them, you've got them all, <laughs> I know I need to. I need to be saved. How can I have eternal life? Well, well, the first thing you need to do is sell everything you have. Wait a minute, do what now? <laughs> Let me know how that works for you. So, no, Jesus was not a role model. Now, don't take that where I didn't go. I, I, Again, stay with me. Let's get the big picture here, the bigger picture. I think, I think it will become clear to you. But for now, I want to say this. If we become focused on Jesus as someone who simply came to give us an example of good moral behavior, we will miss the real reason that he came. Let me say that again. If we focus on Jesus as someone who simply came to give us a good example of moral behavior, we will miss the, the important, critical reason that he came. Jesus became one of us. God became human flesh, came to live on this earth as a man. And here's why. Jesus came to reveal what God is like. Jesus came to reveal what God is like. That's why he came. 
That's why he came. He came because the Father knows that every one of us in this room, every one of us in this community, every one of us in this world is somewhere on a line between curious and desperate to know who God is. You know, maybe it depends on our age or our health or our our circumstances, but all of us are somewhere on that line. We're either curious to know who God is, what he's about, or we're desperate to know about it. God knows that. He understands that. He understands that everybody is, is in that line somewhere. And so Jesus says, here I am. Here, here I am. And, and I'm going to tell you something. And some of it is going to sound a little impractical. Some of it is going to sound kind of off the wall. But I want you to know what the Father is like. I want you to know what the Father is like. The reason I came as one of you is because that was the best way I could help you learn about us, about God. See, the Father is so intent on us knowing Him that He would send His Son to the earth, that God would come to the earth in human form so we could know Him. A couple years back, Time Magazine did a survey they're always doing these religious surveys. And they asked some interesting questions. They asked, do you believe in heaven where people will live with God after they die? 81% of the people who responded said yes. 88% of the people said yes to this. Do you believe that you will meet friends and family members in heaven? And then... The most interesting question to me, they asked, immediately after death, which of the following do you think will happen to you? The number one answer, I will go directly to heaven. 61% of the people said that. Another 15% said they would go to purgatory first and then heaven. So that's, I mean, go ahead and roll that into those who think they're going to heaven when they die, and that's 76% of people. Interestingly enough, only 1% of people said they were going to hell. Isn't that something? Everybody thinks they're going to heaven, but nobody thinks they're going to go to hell. 5% of people thought they would be reincarnated. I thought that would be higher. And only 4% of people said nothing would happen, that death was the end of existence, that existence would cease. Now, let's understand what that means. That means that the vast majority of people that you and I know, way, way, way over 80%, 85 90% of the people that you and I work with, that we interact with on a daily basis, that we go to school with, that we live in, in a neighborhood with, in our families, the vast majority of people believe there's a God out there somewhere, and they're going to see him someday. That's why I say every one of us is on that line from curious to desperate. Every one of us is there. Every one of us wants to know what it's like. And our Heavenly Father met that need by sending His Son to earth, God in the flesh, to become one of us, to reveal what God is like. God knows we want to know. He knows we want to know, and He also knows that we will look in the wrong places. We will look in the wrong places. 
and we'll get some really skewed, really messed up ideas about who God is. Hey, sometimes it happens to people who've been in church all their lives. Right? Going to church didn't protect them from picking up a lot of bad ideas about God. Ideas that aren't even in the Bible. How about this? You ever heard this? God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. But it sounds so right. I wish that was. I, you know what? I'm going to put it in there. It ought to be in there. God moves in mysterious ways. That ain't in the Bible either. We did, about a few years ago, I did a sermon series called Biblical or Bogus, and we talked about these kind of things. I may have to resurrect that and do a biblical or bogus too or something because there's just all kinds of things. Spare the rod and spoil the child. Not in the Bible. How about that? And here's one that just irks me. We've got to pray as if everything depends on God. And then we've got to work as if everything depends on on us. Yeah, I said, I ain't taking it back either. That's crazy. Hey, you better work and you better pray like everything depends on God because guess what? It does. Anything you, are not, you or I can do in our own strength is not worth doing. Sometimes we'll try to find God in our circumstances. Oh, we love to play that game, don't we? Something good happens, we catch a break, some fortunate event comes our way, well, that must be God. But let something bad happen. Or let that good thing not work out, oh, well, that wasn't God. I mean, we can change in the space of two seconds. Oh, that's God. Well, that wasn't God. Oh, I see a parking place right up there at Walmart. Must be God. God's watching out for me today. Another car got it. That wasn't God. God didn't want me to park You know the problem with that? The, the great baseball statistician Bill James is the first one to say this. I just stole it from him. Our entire lives are what statisticians call a limited sample. That means all we know, if we try to interpret God, if we try to interpret life through the lens of our circumstances, all we know is what has happened in our lives up to this point. We don't know the future. We don't know how this situation might have worked out in someone else's life. We've just got this little small limited sample. And we're just not real good at interpreting our circumstances. We tend to misinterpret circumstances all the time. Let me give you an example. Your, your daughter, your teenage daughter comes home. Throws herself down on the bed. And says, oh, I, just, I, I don't know if I even believe there's a God. I didn't get invited to that party. I wanted to get invited to that party. And I've been praying about it. And I had my quiet time. You know, I didn't have it all five days. But I had three of the last five days. I just knew God was going to let me be invited to that party. Now I'm not invited to that party. And mom and dad are going, you didn't get invited to the party? Praise the Lord! We just do a bad job of interpreting our circumstances sometimes. Some of us were raised in a, in a strict, legalistic church or, or home. And to this day, we struggle with a view of God as a kind of a keeper of the rule book. As, as this, this person that we can never do enough 
good enough, long enough to satisfy him. That every time we, we almost get there, oh, the bar gets raised a little bit. The goal gets moved down a little further. And it doesn't matter what we do, we can't satisfy him. We can't please him. Well, God the Father wasn't satisfied. He wasn't satisfied for us to have some kind of skewed, half-true, inaccurate picture of him. He loved us too much for that. He wants us to know him as he really is. That's why he came to be one of us. You know what we find when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? We read the Gospels. We find over and over and over again, Jesus begins his parables, Jesus begins his teachings, he begins his stories with words like this, the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. Ninety times in the gospel, Jesus does that. Jesus says that. And you know why? Because he came to reveal God's thoughts and character and values and priorities to us. He came to reveal the heart of the Father. At the end of his ministry, Jesus' followers still haven't quite gotten it. They've gotten close a couple times. You had Peter saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But they just hadn't quite gotten there. And so they're gathered in the last night that Jesus was with them on earth. They're gathered in a, in a borrowed upstairs room. And, and Jesus says, I'm, I'm leaving you soon. And of course, that, that stresses them out. And that worries them, scares them. But it sets up a conversation in which Jesus lays out as plainly as he does anywhere else in Scripture. I am God. I'm here to reveal the Father. It's in John chapter 14. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn over there to John 14. The verses will be up on the screen as we go along if you don't have a Bible with you today. We'll start in verse 1. John 14, verse 1. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Trust In the original language, Jesus uses the exact same word both times. Trust in God. Trust also in me. You can trust in me like you trust in God. The way you trust in God, you can trust in me. Um, Jesus, aren't you kind of making yourself equal with God there? Yeah. Yeah. Pick up in verse 2. There is more than enough room in my Father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. Now the reality was, they didn't have a clue. But they did not have a clue what he's talking about. And you know what I think they did? I mean, I'm, I'm making this up, obviously, but I think, knowing what we know of them, I think they bluffed it. I think that, oh, that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we knew that. Of course. You know, what have we been doing the last three years? Yeah, we know that. And I, and I think it went along like that until poor old Thomas. 
just, just blurts out. We don't know. It's in verse 6. We don't know, Lord. Thomas said, we have no idea where you are going. So how can we know the way? And this sets up one of Jesus' most well-known statements. In verse 7, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, let's pause there just for a moment. To people who are not believers, you've got to understand this. To people who are not Christians, that sounds like a very narrow, closed-off kind of statement. Right? Just one door, no windows, no side entrances. Right? That's the way that sounds. And you know why it sounds that way? Because it's true. Because it's true. But hold on just a second, because I, I want to, in just a moment, I want to give you some context that I think will help all of us see that verse maybe a little differently than we've ever seen it before. It's because uh, Jesus is not just out there, you know, cutting off large segments of humanity. He's saying, if you don't come through me, you'll never get in. I mean, he is saying, I'm the way to the Father. No one gets to the Father but through me. But we'll give some context in just a minute. We'll look at verse 7 first. Jesus says, if you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You do know him. And I like to think, again, I like to think that after Jesus said that, that he kind of went, Surprise! I'm it! I'm him. I'm as close to the Father as you can get. Now watch him give context. Or, or listen as I give a little context of what Jesus says in verse 6. If you look past me, you'll miss the Father. If you look away from me, to the right, you'll miss the Father. You look away from me to the left, you'll miss the Father. But if you know me, you'll know the Father. You know me. If you know me, you'll know the Father. Now, Philip is so much like we are. Verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Lord, please, no more stories. No more answering our questions with a question. We want to know what God is really like. And it seems like you know Him. It seems like you know Him well. You know Him intimately. Please, Lord, show us the Father. Look at verse 9. Jesus replied, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Jesus says, I can't show you the Father any more than I already have. 
I'm as good as it gets. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm as close as it gets. And if you look past me, you'll miss him. And if you look away from me, you'll miss him. In fact, if you look anywhere else other than me, you will not be moving toward the Father. You'll be moving away from the Father. And you will miss him. Verse 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does His work through me. Jesus says these words that you've been hearing me say all these years, they're not mine. They're the Father's. All these things you've seen me do, these these people I've fed, these people I've healed, these these dead that I've raised, these storms that I have have stilled, that wasn't me, that wasn't my work. It was the Father's. Jesus is saying, you want to know what the Father thinks? Listen to me. You want to know what's important to the Father? You want to know what His priorities are? Watch me. There's a verse back at the beginning of the Gospel of John. That um, John has just started, just started writing down his recollection of, uh, of his time with Jesus on the earth, and, and he's explaining some things kind of before he gets into the actual life story uh, of Jesus. And he says this in John chapter 1, verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has what? He has what? Revealed. The Son or revealed God to us. The Son has revealed the Father. John says, No, we've never seen God. We've never seen Him physically. But the Son, Jesus Christ, He came to draw back the curtain to reveal God to us. He became one of us to show us what God is like. So, you want to know what God thinks? Listen to Jesus. You want to know what God would do? Watch Jesus. And the reason this is so important is because there's an awful lot of things that we could never know anything about God except through Jesus. There are things about God that we can never know if Jesus had not revealed them to us. And we can miss God altogether. And there's only one thing I can think of that's worse than missing God altogether, and that's to have a God light. Imitation God. Five things we can learn about God that we wouldn't know any other way except through Jesus. Real quickly, I want to give these to you this morning. Here's the first one God wants us to know Him as Father. We've been talking about that all morning. We've been talking about the Father. But you know what? In the Old Testament, it was the Lord God. It was kind of a, it was kind of a ruler-subject 
type relationship. I mean, God was somewhere way out there, way up there, and we were way down here, way far away from him. There was, there was distance there. And there were a few people who came along who, who knew him, knew him intimately. But for the most part, it was the Lord God. And then Jesus shows up. And one day some of his followers say, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus says, okay, pay attention. Here we go. You ready? Our Father who art in heaven. You mean we can call God Father? Well, yeah. He's your Father. If you belong to Him, He's your Father. You're His children. We wouldn't get that on our own. We wouldn't get that on our own. Number two, God rewards faithfulness. God rewards faithfulness. We we didn't know that. Because we look around us and we see that life is not fair. We look around us and we see good people living good lives. Bad things happening to them. Terrible circumstances. Tragic things. And and we go, well, nobody's paying attention to what goes on around here. There's there's no justice in this world. And yet Jesus came and over and over and over again told us parable after story after message saying the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. Making it clear to us that God is watching. He knows. He knows if a spirit Sparrow falls. Jesus said the hairs of your head are numbered. He's watching. He knows. And he's going to reward faithfulness. Number three. Our troubles are not divine retribution. That was new. Remember when Jesus and his disciples encountered a blind man? And the disciples said to Jesus, "Uh, Jesus, who sinned? His mother or his father that this man will be born blind? And Jesus says, where'd you get that? This is not a punishment. This is so the glory of God can be shown. The glory of God's going to be revealed in this. And but see, they, they thought if, if somebody was experiencing pain or, or tragedy or difficulty, that they were being punished. That God was paying them back. Oh, how backward they were. How, how you know, and it's, isn't it great that we don't think like that today? Some of us do. Some of us absolutely do. We keep linking bad stuff in our lives to, to some sin or some mistake. Well, I wrecked my car, and I know why. You know, it's because I, I took those three pins from work, you know, a few weeks ago, and I never did take them back. That's why this happened. And Jesus is here saying it doesn't work that way. God's not like that. Do you ever notice that Jesus, not once that I can see, ever asked someone who came to him for healing how they got that way? Cast a demon out of your boy. What's he been doing? Watching MTV, playing with Ouija boy? Issue of blood. 
What have you been doing? Who have you been hanging around with? Jesus never did that. He just healed him. Number four. God cares about how we treat other people. Now, before you go, oh, okay, next. Listen, there are some religions in this world that don't believe that. There are some religions in this world that don't teach that, that don't teach that God cares about how we treat other people. There are some religions in our world today that teach just the opposite of that. They teach that you can treat people badly, and that's a good thing. That you'll be rewarded for that. Even in Jesus' day, the religious leaders of Judaism had very little compassion for people because they were so busy working their way into heaven. They were were too busy making sure they had all of their stuff in a row. And then here comes Jesus saying the kingdom of God is like. He he tells a story where this man gets thrown into prison because he's forgiven this huge debt and yet he refuses to give a tiny little debt that someone else owes him. And Jesus tells another parable about a king who gathers all of his subjects and says, every time that you gave to the needy and and helped the poor and, 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 and cared for the sick, it was like you were doing it to me. And and Jesus tells a crowd one day, everything you thought was important about your church, about your religion, boils down to two things. Love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Number five. Major new territory here. Major. Worldwide. International new territory here. No one is good enough to go to heaven. No one is good enough to go to heaven. Let me tell you something. Every other religion in the world teaches that your works get you to heaven. Every other religion in the world has this scale, this good and bad scale. And we put all the good things that we've done on one side and all the bad things on the other. And we better hope that it, that it tilts to the good. You know, if it, if it tilts to the bad, you know, some of those religions say, okay, you get to go back and try again for a few years and then come back and let's see how it scales up then. That's every other religion in the world. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, you can never be good enough to get to heaven. And, and in fact... Getting to heaven isn't about being good enough. It's about a God loving you so much that He made a way for you to go to heaven in spite of what you've done. Or what you didn't do. We would never come up with that on our own. You know why? You know why I know that? Because nobody ever has. And because we still got Christians and churches today struggling with the same thing. Grace.
groundbreaking, life-changing stuff there, folks. Stuff we only know because Jesus became one of us. Because he came to reveal the Father. Let me challenge you to do something over the next four weeks. Reread the Gospels. Just, just get in. Almost every, I'd be willing to bet everybody in this room has got a Bible. Just get in there and read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John again. You read a little bit every day, you can do it in just a matter of a couple weeks. But this time, don't read through the lens of what did Jesus do. This time through, read through the lens of God, reveal yourself to me. God, show me yourself. Show, in the words of Jesus, let me hear your thoughts. In the works of Jesus, let me see your character and your priorities. Lord, as I read, let me see your heart. Let me see you, Father, with fresh eyes. Change your life. Change your perspective. Because see, here's the deal. Jesus became one of us to make God personal. To make him personal. To move him from out there somewhere to right here. Right here. He took on flesh and lived among us because that was the best way for us to see and know and understand the Father. Understand the Father. That's why Jesus became one of us. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.